I started it originally as a vintage upcycling business. I get motivated by so many different things and inspired by so many different things. What I like to look at it now is it's really art pieces for fashionable wear. And so they're really, the aim is to be one of a kind. My grandmother was a residential school survivor. My goal in, in, you know, my business is not just for monetary funds, right? It, it's really to honor her and her past. Welcome to Cross Pollination. We're a member of the Alberta Podcast Network. This podcast publishes from the traditional territories of the people of the Treaty 7 region and Métis Nation Region 3. This week, Brianna Allison, an artist and entrepreneur, tells us about her business, Thimbleberry Designs. Thimbleberry is a small business with a big story, and its threads combine Indigenous and Canadian history, truth and reconciliation, cultural resurgence, art, family, and sustainability. Brianna and Thimbleberry's story cross-pollinates intersecting themes, and it's about doing business differently. Instead of being about hustle, growth, investors, big markets, and scale-ups, Thimbleberry's power comes from a blend of profound themes about honoring and redeeming history, traditional practices, and nature, and revitalizing culture through an art and mission-driven business. It's a different perspective in thinking about what business, culture, history, and art mean, and how they can come together to reshape the legacies of history and forge new paths. I'm Brianna. I am of Cree, Métis, and mixed European descent, um, with my traditional roots lying in northern Alberta, uh, predominantly. And uh, I currently reside in the traditional territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh people in Vancouver. So I work um, with an energy company uh, in external relations, and so a lot of my uh, day to day, if you will, uh, is building relationships with people, strong relationships, uh, directly with communities, community members, associations, organizations, not for profits. And it's a really rewarding part of my, um, day to day life. And I, I, I love my full time job. Um, but then I also have, you know, a, a side business. And so that's been really interesting for me to explore. And, and I often say, you know, I live in, in two worlds or I wear two hats. Um, the Indigenous side of my cultural heritage really leads a lot of my personal self-discovery as an adult and, um, you know, not growing up predominantly in, in an Indigenous community. Uh, it's been a really a, a journey of self-discovery for me as an adult. And it's it, it's a beautiful part of, of my journey, I feel like. And, and uh, that also feeds into my regular everyday work. Um, where I do work for an organization. And so that's kind of my lens of, of wearing two hats or walking in two worlds. Brianna's business is called Thimbleberry Designs. She produces a range of unique beaded pieces that include household items, accessories, and jewelry like earrings, head ties, headbands, scrunchies, and fashion wear. Thimbleberry is also closely connected to Brianna's Indigenous background that, as she mentioned, she only came to know more closely as an adult. I, I grew up in uh, Metro Vancouver, and so I, I was raised, in, and my mother's side of the family is um, the Cree and Métis side, uh, and then my father is um, of mixed European descent. We're not quite sure what, just because uh, actually I have ancestral roots uh, in Ontario dating back to the uh, mid-1800s, so really probably some of the first settlers in Canada um, and so their ancestral roots or connections to Europe are really unknown. And that's been 
part of, I think, you know, part of the, the beautiful part of my story and, and the discovery, but it's also been kind of painful at times. Um, and, and I'll say, you know, my grandmother was a residential school survivor. Um, she did pass about 12 years ago. And, um, prior to her passing, she really did not talk about being Indigenous or First Nations. She tried to hide her cultural heritage as much as possible. Uh, when she was asked about her orientation, because she did have visibly darker skin, um, she was a visible minority, she would brush it off and say that, you know, she, I remember her saying this vividly, is I'm a good Catholic woman. And so she was already, you could tell by that sentence that she was already conditioned um, through the residential school system to really identify with shame with being Indigenous or First Nations. From what I remember, um, I sensed a lot of fear about the association of being Indigenous. And that, to me, is a real shame because um, I, th I just think of even the advancements we've made in just our cultural outlook in Canada, and specifically with the regards to the treatment of Indigenous peoples in Canada, um, I would say that we've come a long way. We still have a long way to go, but there is so much more information out there and much more truth coming out. And I wish she had been here today to, to hear some of those um, stories and words that are being shared, because I think it would have given her um, some sense of resolution and also uh, a sense of, of pride in, in her identity. Um, and so, you know, part of my journey, I guess, as an adult is, is, is doing that in honor of her, right? Um, making sure that my elders are really, uh, I continue to represent my elders and my cultural history and heritage through my actions today. After Brianna's grandmother passed away, she and her family got to know a lot more about her history and their own. For us growing up, you know, as a child, I would say you don't necessarily are not inclined as a kid to question your cultural heritage and your ties. I would say that if it's embedded into your upbringing, it's just part of, of who you are from the beginning. But when you are really um, robbed of that and, you know, not really told a lot, the questions come up as an adult. And so for me, that same situation happened. You know, my grandmother passed away and in my mid twenties and I'm now in my thirties. Um, and, and at her time of her passing, she was still at a very much at a place where she was not comfortable talking about her indigeneity. And, uh, it wasn't until her passing really that, uh, we had to empty out the house and, um, my grandfather at the time was dealing with dementia, which is now, um, he's, 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 he has Alzheimer's. And so that journey of kind of clearing out the house, we actually found our historical family record. They were, in, you know, in the very back of a locked cabinet. So my grandmother had kept immaculate records dating back to the late 1800s, um, of birth certificates and, um, even back at that time, actually, more commonly, they were baptism records. And it's, uh, they're all hand, hand scroll written, right? And so at times they can be really difficult to read, but, uh, it gave us just, just enough information to really start asking some very pointed questions. 
Um, and luckily she still had a few surviving sisters, uh, that could tell us a little bit more about our heritage. But what we started to really learn through conversations, even with my grandmother's sisters, is that they didn't know a lot about their cultural heritage. And there was a lot of things that have been commonly told in, I would say, um, in residential school system that were, I would say, falsehoods or, or preconceived notions of what being an Indigenous person meant. And what we're now learning, and a lot of non-Indigenous and Canadians are learning, is that the truth wasn't necessarily told at that time. And so that's been a beautiful part of our discovery, but also, like I said, can be somewhat frustrating sometimes because finding historical records through, you know, federal and provincial websites is no easy task. Um, it also becomes even more complicated after somebody is deceased, uh, and especially with my grandfather next of kin being um, having Alzheimer's and advanced at this point now where he's nonverbal is that, you know, just even getting the authority to pull those records has been a real challenge for my family. So it's been, it's been a journey. I, I'll say that for sure. <laughs> Brianna's family's findings about their heritage led to more exploration that branched out like braiding streams into art, into learning from each other and from elders and into Brianna's own beading business, Thimbleberry Designs. So my, my, my sister, who is in Nova Scotia, is, a, is an artist, and she is um, part of her studies. She, she got her master's uh, through NASCAD. And part of her studies were focusing on uh, Indigenous histories in Canada. And so she uncovered, personally, a lot. Combined with finding the family records, we were really starting to learn stuff at an advanced pace. And through that... Um, she really started to connect with different art medium forms. And one of those forms was beading. And with anything culturally sensitive, I'm just very conscious of how you learn the, um, the, the cultural side of it, because there is a part of it that needs to be well respected. And that's how our ancestors would have learned. That's how our communities would have passed on knowledge from generation to generation. And so, you know, in, in fitting with that, you know, my sister learned from a number of uh, elders on how to first bead. And I think the first bead stitch she ever did was a, a, a two needle flat stitch. Um, and that is actually specific to the region of, of Northern Alberta that we're from. That is what our ancestors would have used that specific stitch. Uh, in, in their beading practices and in, in their regalia and, and part of celebrating their culture. And so that was one of the first things she gifted to me, which was just so beautiful because although it wasn't traditional in the sense that I didn't learn my teachings from an elder, I, I got to learn it from my family. And, and that is really, I think, a beautiful part of this. The strands of Thimbleberry's story connect to family history, Indigenous and Canadian history, art, traditional knowledge, and now fashion and sustainability. Thimbleberry started its life through vintage fashion wear. You know, I, even from a young age, I spent a lot of time with my mom and my grandmother, and part of what we used to do from a very young age is thrifting. 
and so my grandmother was very adamant on no waste. You know, she grew up in a time where um, money was tight and you didn't always necessarily, like she survived through the depression, she, you know, they didn't have a lot of food and sometimes they didn't have a lot of means. So the, the premise for living was zero waste, right? And, and so carrying that kind of forward was thrifting because you're, uh, in my eyes, I always see it as like rescuing items because the, the items themselves, if they're vintage, they're telling a story through their history, right? And so I think, and, and we all know that things now are much more mass manufactured than they were in the past. Uh, so there's something really beautiful about attaining something that has a history and a story to it. And that's kind of how I think about myself, right? I have, I have a history and a story and a whole, a whole area of my life that was really undiscovered until my, until my grandmother's passing. And so I identify with that very strongly because I can, I can still remember being a little kid and going to the thrift store with my grandmother. And we would always be looking for very specific items. Like we would be looking for furs and leathers and suede that were in good condition, well constructed. And the goal was to have no waste. It wasn't necessarily meaning you buy a jacket and you wear the jacket as is. It was oftentimes, you know, deconstructing elements of a vintage item and repurposing them for a different use in modern time. And so that's still a large part of the practice that I carried forward. And I kind of um, took on some of the beading aspects of things a little bit later. But initially, Thimbleberry really started as a vintage upcycling business. And what I've what I've kind of developed into now is um, and, and what I, you know, what I like to look at it now is it's really fashionable art pieces, uh, or sorry, art pieces for fashionable wear. And so they're really, the aim is to be one of a kind and something that you can have a lot of pride in, in wearing. I started it originally as a vintage upcycling business. And so I had a large number of, and I predominantly focused on jackets and I would take a vintage item, let's say it's for leather or suede. I would deconstruct it. Um, sometimes and a lot of times they'd have a large shoulder pads or bat wing sleeves in them and just things that were a little too out there for current fashionable wear, but had great, great original structure to them and great construction. And I would take them apart and repurpose them for, for appropriate fashionable wear for current fashion trends. And as I was going through that, you know, my sister was on her own uh, beading journey and I really became interested in learning more about my cultural heritage and was really trying to kind of uncover, or dig up some of the past. And so it kind of came organically where I just approached her and asked her if she would do, uh, this is actually dur during COVID, right at the very beginning. So, you know, about a year and a half ago, I said, would you do a video session with me? and teach me what you've learned from the elders so far so that I'm learning it in a cultural, culturally appropriate way. And she was very open to sharing with me. And so we've kind of been in the, and now we're in this part where we're, we're, you know, supporting each other through, through our cultural identity and discovery. And, and that's a really beautiful thing that we can share together as well. I'm so thankful for that. Um, and so part of that was now I'm thinking, okay, well, now I can combine beading into these fashionable art pieces for wear. 
So traditionally, you know, beading was used in regalia and regalia is worn, um, during ceremonial, uh, cultural activities or, uh, you know, for example, a powwow and you would wear your regalia, um, to either, you know, you, you could, you would be dancing or performing some sort of, um, cultural, cultural activity. And so, that I, I don't do the traditional regalia. What I, that's really important to say that that that's highly respected and it has to be done in the very much in an appropriate way. And that is not the medium. But what I do is, is kind of combine modern and traditional aspects into fashionable wear. And that's where the beading comes into play because it's still recognizing that cultural history and the cultural practice of beading for indigenous peoples but it's incorporating it into modern items for fashionable wear. As an art entrepreneur, Brianna's pieces for Thimbleberry are all different and unique. And from vintage fashion, she's also moved into other kinds of beaded fashion wear. Here's how she comes up with the ideas for each new piece. Yeah, how I curate things is very interesting. It's not a predefined process, I'll tell you that. <laughs> it's definitely, I... Uh, I that's the artist in me though. I can't, can't see if I acquire a piece, really, I'm looking for a few good things. It needs to have quality fabric is, is something that I really place a lot of focus on in the line. Um, you'll see I use a lot of natural fabrics, uh, as well as some hides. And that's something I'm getting into as well, because I really look to support other fellow indigenous entrepreneurs. Um, and also support the revival of some of those cultural practices like acquiring hide and tanning it and that whole uh, aspect of things. So there's a number of different ways. Yes, I still go to the thrift store. I still very much acquire items from there that just, you know, seem like a, a great fabric. Let's say it's whether it be cotton or silk or leather or suede. I'm very much attracted to those types of fabrics. Um, and then I'm also looking, I, I think there's something really cool about, you know, I've acquired a few items from the Hudson Bay company. Obviously the fur trade was, it was a huge, uh, influence for Métis peoples. And there's a whole other story behind the Hudson's Bay and the whole fur trade and how that affected indigenous peoples in Canada. And so, you know, I look for items that kind of, that I have a personal connection with that I can, I tie a story to, or, it could be as simple as it just reminds me of my grandmother. And so I'll purchase the item because it makes me think of her. And, and I should have noted this before, but really something that this whole line is dedicated to her. It's really in her memory. And so my goal in, in, you know, my business is not just for monetary funds, right? It, it's really to honor her and her past. Um, where she didn't feel comfortable in her time living on this earth to do that. And so I'm trying to do that in honor of her. And from vintage fashion and sustainability, incorporating patterns of nature and inspired by traditional techniques, Thimbleberry also looks to promote small businesses and fellow Indigenous artists in a network of economic support that revitalizes culture and honors history. I acquire, I will say that there's a, and, and I would encourage all consumers to do this, but really know the story behind who you're purchasing from. Um, you know, as a small business owner, obviously Amazon is a really easy platform to use and it, and it can deliver to you right away. 
but I would rather those funds go to somewhere that a fellow indigenous entrepreneur, for example, who has a small business, um, that manufactures, for example, I just ordered some cotton fabrics off of an indigenous, um, entrepreneur who designs her own quilting fabrics. And she, you know, you can, you, I've made a number of different items out of those, including some of my scrunchies. And I just thought that was so beautiful, right? Goes full circle. It's, it's indigenous artists supporting other indigenous artists. And I just think there's something so beautiful about that. And then I would also say that I'm, I constantly am looking for ways to learn, um, other traditional cultural practices. So I've just recently done a drum making course, for example, um, with a, with an elder out of Cache Creek. And then I've also taken a cedar weaving class, um, through Musqueam First Nation. And so there's a lot of those, they may not be necessarily my home community, but I'm honoring some of their traditional practices and really learning from the elders. I think that's the biggest thing for me is, is trying to carry on those learnings as much as possible. This episode is brought to you by Shift Podcast by Alberta Innovates. Shift showcases the work being done in the province's innovation ecosystem, everything from health to clean energy. Join hosts Katie Dean and John Hagen as they interview the researchers, entrepreneurs, and businesses that are shifting our perspective about innovation in the province. You can hear about enhancing your cybersecurity, laying the legal foundation of starting a business, the three R's of the hemp revolution, and more. Find Shift Podcast by Alberta Innovates on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find it at shift.albertainnovates.ca. That's shift.albertainnovates.ca. In addition to beaving and weeding, Brianna's work also ties together upcycling nature and spirituality in a way that speaks to different economic models and prioritizes culture and sustainability. If you just think about a hide, for example, like a leather, that, that was a living being at one point, right? That, that was a living creature. And so that creature's, um, spirit lives on through the art mediums today and however you repurpose them. So you have to think about how you want to honor the spirit of that animal when you're, when you're using it. And so that's a part of the journey for me as well. I think, you know, I just keep thinking, uh, you know, what, would they, would they be happy, I guess, with how, how they're being represented and how the material is being used and are we being wasteful and is there unnecessary, um, that, that's really where sustainability comes in, right? Is there unnecessary use for this or can we, can we use all of the different elements to this to really repurpose something? And I, I think part of it as well is, is being conscious of consumerism and really where we're going as uh, really as people across the globe is that we've been very focused, uh, you know, I would say in the last 10 to 15 years on, on mass production. And now we're starting to see a shift, right? In people's thinking, going back to how can I be sustainable in, in my ways of living and knowing, and how can I give back to, the the world really in terms of lowering my consumption and my waste and so that that's also really woven into my practices in the business is those are constantly things that I'm thinking in my mind like even the packaging is it is it paper how how many trees would they have to cut down to to make that packaging right is there a way to make it so that it's reusable for somebody so that it's not just thrown in the garbage 
that is a really important part of that as well. So for me, as a person, I really try each individual project because I get inspired by different things all the time. And some project may start as something, right? It might start as one thing and it might journey into a completely different thing. And I think there's something really cool about that whole process. It's part of artistry that has always interests me. And I think that all of my mediums have always been working with my hands. But I'm also very conscientious of of minimizing waste and not being a part of the problem, I would say, when it comes to sustainability and, and the issues around waste and environment that we're currently faced with. Brianna works to use the leftover fabric she acquires for Thimbleberry in different and creative ways. She also looks for the business to really connect in a personalized way with its customers, often through social media. We'll tell you the full details of where you can find Thimbleberry Designs at the end of the episode, and it's shortly launching an official website this fall. Yeah, so right now I'm on Instagram and I have a page on Facebook at Thimbleberry Design. Because I really wanted my customers to have a feel for a couple of different things. One is I really wanted them to see items represented on multiple people of different cultural backgrounds and ethnicities. I would say that that is maybe one of the most common misconceptions is that it's not appropriate for non-Indigenous peoples to wear Indigenous, other Indigenous artwork. And that is not true. I think the biggest thing you know, in terms of purchasing, and this is kind of goes back to my first point about know who you're purchasing from, right? Know your artist, because there has been a large amount of artists that have culturally appropriated or stolen designs from fellow artists, and that's not something we want to support. So, you know, in terms of just just having your background as a consumer, in terms of who you're supporting, I think is so vital to really if you're looking to recognize indigenous arts and culture truly through your purchasing, then you should do so by knowing the artists and creating a connection with the artists. And that's what, uh, what I think is so beautiful about a small business, because you can do that in a way where I'm happy to answer people's direct messages on Instagram and kind of link in with them like that. And I actually, I may end up having to close it off, uh, closer to the website design, depending on how busy it is, but I still have custom orders open. So people can kind of say, well, that, that, you know, that those earrings really inspired me, but I would love them in a different color. Or, you know, I had one woman come to me and she really, um, she grew up eating a lot of strawberries in her, in her community. And that was just something she needed a pair of strawberry earrings and they, she couldn't find any anywhere that were beaded in the way that she was looking for. And that was something really cool that we got to work on together. And I just, uh, I, I really enjoy those personalized experiences with my customers. So Brianna's inspiration for Thimbleberry's pieces comes from engaging with customers from her grandmother, as well as from nature, other artists, and anything else that fires her imagination. I mean, I get motivated by so many different things and inspired by so many different things. Uh, I get inspired by fellow artists, you know, uh, I get inspired by a lot of times. And I would say this is predominantly the inspiration behind a large majority of my creations is, is the outdoors, is nature, is the land, right? The land, the water, the animals, they inspire me the most. And it's something as simple as, you know, you could be at the beach and staring at the sun and just the way the rays hit the light in the sky could inspire a totally different beading design. And so those are things that I get inspired by. 
Same thing with color combinations. I'm very big on that. So I use a lot of natural color combinations, co combining the colors of the earth and the water and the rocks um, to create something beautiful and hopefully something that resonates with others, that it's from nature. And what I really want people to have is when, when they experience or see my work, I really want them to have an emotional connection to the work. And so when I even told that story about uh, the consumer who really wanted the strawberries, like that was an emotional connection for her that connected her to her community and her history. And so that is part of what I try to weave into my work um, going forward. And so, yeah, it, it, the sky is the limit. But again, those are, I mean, the outdoors, the creator, the nature, everything that has kind of transpired and, and where I live today on, in Vancouver, uh, in the traditional territory, territory of the Musqueam, Squamish and Salatooth. Like I grew up here. I was born in downtown Vancouver. I grew up in the mountains and the ocean and that very much is woven into my way of life and, and really how I think about the world. I've done a lot of traveling. When I travel back home, I always, as soon as I smell that mountain air and I see that all that lush green, like that signifies home for me. I'm very inspired too by the ocean. I am, you know, I've always loved living so close to the water and I really identify with, I, you know, when I was a kid, I, I think my parents couldn't get me out of the water. I was like in water babies when I was just, you know, like a cup, like I think one, I started water babies. <laughs> And I went all the way up to like almost the lifeguard, um, you know, certification. It's because I love being in the water. So I almost think of myself a little bit of a, as a mermaid. And so you'll notice there's a lot of gold um, woven into kind of my work and a lot of a lot of metallics and, and shine. And um, and and that to me is is combining with those natural elements, because it's kind of how I, a reflection of how I see myself living within my work. Brianna, as she mentioned, also closely considers family, culture, traditional practices, sustainability, and history in her work. History and family have been an especially strong presence in recent months, as more findings have come to widespread public attention of the unmarked graves of hundreds of Indigenous children at the sites of former residential schools, starting with Kamloops in British Columbia. I mean, that's an emotional topic for me, especially in the current climate. I mean, as we know, the the discovery of the bodies of the children of 215 children at the Kamloops Residential School. Um, that brought up an unexpected amount of emotion for me personally, because I was just really, my thoughts were surrounding not only the families of those um, children that never returned, but I really started to internalize and think about what my grandmother's journey must have been like and, and how, um, how that affected her as an adult. And it's been an emotional space for me to kind of explore that. Um, I'd say the beauty that has come out of that is that I've been in a space to share with, with fellow colleagues and, and other fellow Indigenous um, peoples that I have a really close relationship with. And it's inspired a lot of storytelling, um, even if it is a little bit painful or hard to talk about. I think the first step, um, you know, in terms of reconciliation and the R word, and I refer to it as the R word, it's a big word, right? It's it. And there's no one simple path that Canada 
Canada can take to get to being, to being reconciled. I think what first needs to come before reconciliation is truth. And so what you're seeing now is in, and through the discovery, um, in Kamloops, we're starting to see the real truth. We've been told for generations, right, that Indigenous peoples have been saying that these are, there are these mass, um, mass grave sites and they do exist and, and that children didn't return from school. And sadly, you know, with the proof of these discoveries, I think a lot of people are starting to really resonate with the story internally. Um, just as even as simple as, as, as being a parent, right? You can, you can really internalize your own journey, whether you're Indigenous or non-Indigenous, um, and really start to think about what that would mean for you as an individual if you were in that time and, and forced to go to a residential school away from your community and away from your, um, your family, really. And, and that's a really hard thing to think about. So the biggest thing for me, yes, absolutely. It influences my work. Um, part of what I've talked a lot about is respecting the cultural heritage. And while I'll say that there is no simple way to do that, uh, especially when you're like myself and I'm an in, in urban indigenous person where I haven't grown up in a sense of a strong sense of community, my sense of community was my family and my friends. Uh, and so I'm learning that sense of community as I get older, right? And, and connecting back in with my roots and learning more about my ancestors and, and what the cultural ties and, and really what the common practices were then. Um, and then revitalizing those because what we don't realize as Canadians, and I think a lot of people are starting to really figure out through this truth journey now is that a lot of Indigenous ways of knowing and being and a lot of the cultural aspects were banned um, for a period of time. And so that's why this cultural preservation and, and resurgence is so important and so vital for Canada. Uh, it's part of our legacy as Can Canadians, what we now call Canada, right? That is part of our history. And so it's so important, I think, that that truth gets told first on this journey of reconciliation. Right now, Brianna runs Thimbleberry in addition to her nine to five work, but it's also the kind of business that runs in the back of her mind and through her dreams. In the future, she has plans to learn more traditional skills and arts and incorporate them into her work. I asked what she foresees for Thimbleberry as a business. Yeah, so that's an interesting, purely defined yet, and that's mostly because I like having a lot of freedom in my work, and that's something um, that you have an advantage of being a small business owner is you can kind of take it where you want. But where I see, there's a couple key elements that I see always staying the same. I see small production, right? I don't ever imagine that I'm going to be mass producing items. Um, it, it's really, I want my customers and, and even followers and just people who appreciate the work, uh, to really feel confident in the fact that it's, it's, a, it's an, it's a piece of art for fashionable wear. And so that premise will maintain long-term. Um, but where I do see some growth and opportunity is I would love to see my products featured in small local shops uh, across the province. I would obviously be very selective in terms of who I worked with uh, when it comes to that. Also really like to have a website and a 
uh, customer base and, and, and a large following of people who would appreciate my work. And I would love to be engaged with them on social media and really learn from, um, my customers as well in terms of what, what resonates with them and, and hear some personal stories of their own, um, cultural journeys and discoveries. I think that that's going to change. That's where I don't know where Thimbleberry will end up because, you know, you, I've met so many people on my journey so far since my mid twenties of discovering my own history. Uh, I've met so many people who have influenced my art in so many different ways and just in really natural, organic ways. And I just, I would love to keep that going forward for Thimbleberry in the future. That's it for this week's episode on the story of Thimbleberry Designs. If you'd like to see the pieces or contact Brianna about beaded art, Thimbleberry has a Facebook page, Thimbleberry Designs, and is on Instagram at Thimbleberry Design. In the fall, you'll also be able to search the business directly on its shiny new website. If you're interested in understanding more about truth, reconciliation, and residential schools in Canada, you can find the reports and other documents of the National Truth and Reconciliation Commission at www.trc.ca. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to leave us a comment or a review on Apple Podcast, or would like to recommend the podcast to someone you know, we always appreciate that. You can connect with the show directly on Twitter at Polinata1, on Instagram at Pod, or on our website www.crosspollination.co. Join us next time for Marty Seto's wild ride through digital advertising and getting better at hockey with age. Thanks for listening. See you next time. This episode of Cross Pollination is brought to you by the Calgary Foundation, proudly supporting community needs for 65 years. Whether someone is battling depression, fleeing domestic abuse, or worried about putting food on the table, it's times like these that inspire people to help others during a period of unprecedented needs. The Calgary Foundation is here to help. Through the generous support of donors, the Foundation offers a wide range of funding opportunities for organizations who share a common goal of building a healthy, giving, caring, and resilient community one where everyone thrives. If you're part of a registered charity looking for a grant, discover a wealth of resources at calgaryfoundation.org and learn more about the Calgary Foundation on their Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube channels. Thanks to zapsplat.com for music.